Uh, good morning. I guess we'll get started. It's the official 10 o'clock hour. Uh, and just for everyone, this we're going to do a recap from last week. This week is Hebrew Society, Theology, and Language. And like last week, let's stand and repeat the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. All right, week one recap. We did like uh, 600 years of history in a little over 40 minutes. Uh, there is no test, by the way, on spelling all these names. Uh, but what you see is the people of Israel taken away, brought back, conquered, independent, conquered, independent, conquered throughout all this thing. And for those of you who are in first service, uh, Josh actually talked about another Hebrew rebellion that occurred in AD 130. Uh, it was when the, uh, the Jews wanted to be independent again, and they were for about three years, which is the length of time it took the Romans to get their armies together to conquer them. Uh, they just don't have fast transportation. Uh, and the, the Jews just never understood that, you know, they, they kept breaking the rules. You know, what, what are the rules of the Romans? Pay your taxes, don't rebel. They, did, they didn't pay their taxes and they rebelled. They got crushed in 8070, they get crushed in 8030. Uh, so, uh, what did the Jews get from each of the people that conquered them? The Babylonians, they changed their language. They went from speaking Hebrew to everyone speaking Aramaic. Uh, the royalty was essentially uh, destroyed, so the priests become the total leaders of the people. So whoever is high priest becomes the most important position in Israel. And uh, the synagogue developed because they were in Babylon, there was no temple, so that a religious uh, structure of the synagogue develops to allow them to worship. The Persians take over, they send them back home they allowed Ezra to rebuild the temple. So the Jews have a second temple, which now becomes the center of their worship. Uh, the synagogue remains because not everyone can get to the temple. Uh, they're speaking Aramaic, the priests are running the temple. The priests are running the country for all intents and purposes. Uh, then along comes Alexander the Great and the rest of the Greeks. Uh, they conquer them again. Uh, what they give them is another language, Greek. Uh, as we'll learn today, Greek is not universally spoken in uh, Palestine at that time. Uh, during this period, the Pharisees and the Sadducees arise as political parties. Uh, and they have to, we'll talk about the theology today a little bit and some of the politics. Then uh, for 100 shining years, the Jews were independent as the Hasmoneans slash Maccabees. And in the Jewish mind of the first century, this was the uh, epitome of Jewish history because in their mind they have to be independent for the Messiah to come. Everything about the Jews, all four parties, is about the Messiah. And all of them agree that the Jews need to be independent for Jesus to come, or for the Messiah to come. And so during, during this period they had political independence and in the Essenes it basically split off 
of the Pharisees during this period of time, become the third major party. Uh, and then during the Civil War, uh, the Romans come along, conquer both sides. Uh, so the Romans basically make everything much more secure. There's a lot less crime. It's easier to transport. There's standardized laws, there's standardized taxes. Uh, they have somewhat limited autonomy. As I said, the rules of the Romans were simple. Pay your taxes, don't rebel. You could do anything you wanted other than that. And then during this period of time, the fourth major party, the Zealots, were formed. The Zealots were all about independence. So as we roll into this area, this is the, what Judah looked like when Jesus was born. Uh, Galilee is up here, which is where uh, Nazareth is up here in Galilee. Uh, Jerusalem's down here. Uh, Bethlehem is about 10 miles from Jerusalem right there. We'll come back to that possibly in a second. All right, any questions about last week? Anything you want clarified? What we're trying to do is set the table as far as what the culture was like when Jesus is preaching uh, during the Gospels. Uh, this slide starts talking about the social, theological, four main groups, other, ignoring the Romans and the Herodians, Herod, who ran, ran everything, and the Romans, who were the political leaders, the Jews had four main parties. Uh, you had the Sadducees. Uh, they were the original party. The Sadducees were, uh, we know from uh, Pliny the Elder and Josephus, there's probably only two or 3,000 of them total. Virtually all of them were priests. Not all priests were Sadducees, but almost all Sadducees were priests. The reason for that is the Sadducees were the power party. They're the party in power. Their, their entire uh, existence, if you will, revolved around the temple and revolved around maintaining their own power. Uh, the Pharisees evolved as a response to the Sadducees. The Pharisees were primarily, we would call them mostly middle class, uh, scholars. They were the guys that uh, were the smart guys in school. Every, as, as we'll learn in a week or two, everyone kind of, all the men, or sorry, the boys, went through school up to about age 13. And then you were either going to do one or two tracks. You're going to go, go learn, get apprenticed and go learn to work. Or you're smart enough that one of the rabbis picks you up and continues your education. Those guys tended to become Pharisees. So the Pharisees were about the law. Uh, and so they were, the Sadducees were about do whatever you need to maintain power to keep the temple around. The Pharisees were a response to that, saying no, it's really about the law. It's not about, uh, you know, if, if the governing power wanted you to do something, i.e. slaughter a pig on the altar, uh, the Sadducees said, yeah, we're fine. We're fine with that because they're not going to tear the temple down. The Pharisees would say, no, we're not slaughtering pigs on the altar because that's not, 
that's counter to what the Word of God says. Yes? Can I just toss in, the, with the priests and the Sadducees, uh, in Luke 1, when Zacharias goes to pray at the temple, it says he's a righteous priest, which you would think is not necessary to say. Right. But the Sadducees were such bad people in general that you had to clarify right. he's actually a good guy. Right, so that tells you... Right, that tells you the Pharisees are the opposite. We get a lot of instances where they're maybe the hypocrites in the group, but in general, the Pharisees were awesome, devoted people with a subgroup of hypocrites within them. But a lot of the Pharisees were pretty awesome people. So it's kind of a right. the well, high level. There's somewhere it says many of them followed Jesus. Right. And right. Paul I mean, never gives up the Pharisee title. He keeps it all the way through. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about Scripture. And they studied and they were all about reading. So a lot of the Pharisees, when they read the Scripture and they met Jesus, realized Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Uh, The the Sadducees uh, were pretty much, uh, you know, the fact he talks about righteous priest, uh, John the Baptist's father is a righteous priest, tells you that, A, he's not a Sadducee. Uh, the Sadducees were not held in high regard by anyone else in Israel other than the other Sadducees. They were, they were basically the richest people, and their entire lives revolved around staying rich. Uh, then we have a splinter group called the Essenes that splinter off. The Essenes actually came at, these would be very, very, we would call, they would call themselves very traditionalist. The Sadducees. It's funny they would call themselves traditionalists, but they're the, they are the most reactive. To uh, if you ask a Sadducee, are you? Uh, do you believe in the Scriptures? They'd say absolutely. But they're the guys that would easily switch what they're doing to stay in power. The Pharisees are all about being very, very Scripture oriented. What's the bot? What's the Torah say? The Essenes got disgusted by both these two. Uh, A great example is during the Hasmonean Empire, one of the high priests was a Sadducee. He gathered uh, 800 Pharisee families and tried to get them to, uh, I forget what the exact little thing they were trying to do. They refused, so he had them all executed uh, in front of the temple. Had, had, he slit the throats of all the children of the Pharisees first, then asked the Pharisees, do you renounce Phariseeism? They said, no. They slit the wives' throat. Do you renounce? No. Killed all 800 of the Pharisees. In the, in the writings of the first century, you'll see the number 800. That's what that refers to, is the 800. The Pharisees remember this for hundreds of years after that point, which is also talks about why the Pharisees and Sadducees don't get along. And just to be fair, the next high priest was in fact a Pharisee. And he did enact some revenge. So they were not 100% innocent. Uh, he took a lot of the Sadducees and threw them out of their houses and gave them to Pharisees. The Essenes got so tired of this that they basically said, we're leaving. And so the Essenes very much withdrew from... Uh, Jerusalem and that environment. So 
We know about them because the Dead Sea Scrolls are written by Essenes, and for which we know that the Essenes really, once again, were very much pharisaical in their pursuit of scripture. Uh, but they talk, to, you talk a lot about the writings, talk about piety, they talk about poverty, intentional poverty. They have a lot of communal ownership of things. Uh, they're very much about community. Uh, they're big into immersion baptism. That's how you became an Essene. Uh, and from the writings of the uh, conquerors of Israel in AD 70, there are thousands of members of the Essenes. Uh, and some of the cities elsewhere in Galilee and Judea would have small communities of Essenes that were part of that city. The, the big communities were in, uh, uh, out in the desert, well, it was now the desert, uh, where they would live to try to be almost uh, withdrawn from the world. Uh, and then the fourth major political party is the Zealots. Uh, all these people, what they wanted was the Messiah. They just had a different view of what would cause the Messiah to come. The Sadducees were about the temple. If we can make the temple essentially perfect, the Messiah will come. The Pharisees were about the law. If we can make the law central, we can make the law perfect, the Messiah will come. The Essenes were about community. If we can withdraw to where we're by ourselves out here, we're going to hang on and study the law until the Messiah comes. The Zealots were about the Messiah will not come until we are independent again. So therefore, I'm going to do everything I can do to make us an independent country so the Messiah will come. So all these guys had the same goal, which was to create, to recreate Israel as under David so that the Messiah would come. And then they all had the same view as well, too. So once the Messiah comes, who's going to be in charge? Whichever group, yeah. They all wanted to be in charge. They were, they were not... Uh, I, you know, I'm going to be a servant when the Messiah comes. The reason they want the Messiah come is that the Messiah is going to kick the, he's going to kick the Romans out. He's going to kick the Syrians out. He's going to kick the, the Jews out. He is, the entire world will be run from Jerusalem by the Messiah. That's a lot of the theology that they were running at the time. Here's a quick little uh, Pharisee versus Sadducee. Uh, Sadducees, their main thing was the temple which is why after AD 70, the Sadducees ceased to exist because the temple ceased to exist. When uh, you have the uh, rebellion in AD 68, the Sadducees refused to leave the temple because in their mind, where's the Messiah coming? To the temple. So therefore, if I leave the temple, the Messiah is never coming. So they refused to leave the temple. Uh, the Romans... Once the Romans start a, a uh, siege, they don't let anyone out. There's no surrendering after that. And so they started the siege. Then the guys said they want to surrender. The Romans say no. They pretty much wipe them out. When they wipe them out, they kill all the Sadducees. The Sadducees essentially disappear in AD 70. The Pharisees were about the Torah. The important thing about the Torah is uh, when you get down here to written and oral versus written. The Sadducees believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The Pharisees is the first five books 
plus the Torah is all the oral traditions that are written down by the rabbis that are interpreting issues that have arisen because of the Pentateuch. Uh, for instance, uh, how far can you walk on a Sabbath? It just says in the Pentateuch, you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. How far can you walk? How far is a walk and what's a rest, what's a walk? And so there are lots of writings that evolve over time about how far can you walk. Uh, a great example of why the Sadducees did not like the Pharisees is uh, there was a entity that the rabbi said you could do like could I pick up a jar of water in my home to pour it over my hands on the, on the, on the Sabbath. That was, that was actually a big issue. And could I take food from the preparation place to the table, or does that work? And so the rabbi said, as long as you're in your house, that does not work. All right, now my neighbor says, oh, I didn't bake enough bread for the Sabbath. Can I walk bread over the neighbors? So what the Pharisees did, one of the rabbis is, you created uh, Sabbath homes. Since doing things in your own home is not against the, the law, uh, you could create a giant home that included 10 of your closest neighbors. And so if they needed to borrow something from you, you could walk that to them. And that's not breaking the law on the Sabbath. Uh, I just want to say that sounds, I mean, that sounds kind of crazy, <laughs> obviously. But at the same time, you're like, these people took the Bible seriously. Right. Like they were devoted enough to God to say, okay, when God says we should do this, and, right. God, and over and over you see in Deuteronomy, which is the book that Jesus quotes most from, about do all the commands. Do all mm -hmm. of them. Don't add to, don't take away. You're not exempt from any of them. They, they really want to understand and debate and question each other. How do we, how do, we do what God says? In, in our life. Right, right. And, so, and so that you have this oral traditions which develop and sometimes the oral traditions are good, sometimes they're not. And so part of the issue revolves around at the time of Christ, some of the Pharisees, not all of them, some of them gave the oral traditions the same weight as the written tradition, as the written law. And not understand they're in fact just an interpretation of a very wise man some years before. Uh, and then you'll see in the book of Acts, there's a big thing is Pharise Pharisees believe in angels and the resurrection. Sadducees say in the Pentateuch, it does not mention anything about angels and resurrection, therefore there aren't any. Which is also helps the Sadducees because they're all about, I need, if God loves me, since there's no resurrection and no heaven, he rewards me now. So if you're rich and on top of the world, that's a really great theology to have. I'm rich because God loves me. And he loves me because he's giving me my stuff now. Uh, and then we'll see in the book of Acts if we get there, uh, there's an argument that uh, in front of the Sanhedrin between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, theological, uh, back to the same thing, prosperity theology, 
was what we call prosperity theology, was widespread among the Zealots, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. <coughs> prosperity theology, God must reward me when I keep his commandments. The argument among the three groups is which of the commandments did that, that entail? Uh, and so the basic application becomes down to if you're rich, you're faithful. If you're poor, either you're sinful or some, one of your ancestors before you was sinful. And you'll, we'll see that a lot through the Proverbs. And the Essenes had a little more what we would almost consider a Christian theology because they're much more communal, uh, they're much more... Uh, intentional, they, they remind you a lot of some of the early uh, monks in the monasteries of withdrawing from the world, owing things communally. And then, uh, so that's kind of, the, any questions about theology? This is a uh, yeah, 30,000 foot overview. This is not in-depth discussion of Pharisees versus Sadducees. Yes? My thought was when I saw that rich equals faithful, poor equals sinful, could Jesus have been more offensive because that was all that Jesus talked about. Well, that's that, that's what we're going to see in the Proverbs. When, when he when he starts rolling it out, we miss a lot of that because we don't come from a necessary prosperity theology background. But when he starts rolling some of that, we'll see in these proverb in the par, proverbs parables parables b, b words parables uh, that he really does do a lot of you know the mic drop boom uh, that happens a lot. Uh, all right, and a quick, quick uh, rundown of the language of the first century. In and around Jerusalem, you had basically five languages spoke. Everyone kind of spoke. The, the language, if you grew up there, was Aramaic. It's basically the common people in Judea. Uh, the reason Syriac comes into play is when the church leaves to go to Antioch, what country is Antioch in? Syria. Guess what they speak in Antioch of Syria? Syriac. So a lot of the early church writings, early meaning like 100 and beyond, are in Syriac. Uh, not a lot of people around Judea where Jesus spoke, spoke Syriac. But when he's up in Galilee, he's kind of in a border area. Greek. Basically, middle and upper class people spoke Greek. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of schools. So if you were a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, you spoke Aramaic. You might understand some Greek because if you want to sell your fish and someone's middle class, upper class, they're going to probably speak to you in Greek. Uh, Hebrew, pretty much a hardcore, uh, he, the hardcore Hebrew spoke Hebrew. Uh, we know from some of the writings of the, uh, of the first century that the, the Hebrew was kind of focused around Jerusalem because that's where the hardcores lived. Uh, and so the, the difference is all the boys were educated into read and write Hebrew when they had to read the scriptures because that's what the scriptures were written in. Uh, there's also a big uh, controversy that develops because the Jews who don't live in Palestine or Judea frequently did not learn Hebrew, which is why the Bible was translated into Greek, the Septuagint is translated early on, and then there's some conflicts that occur in the book of Acts that we may see between the Hebrew speaking and the Greek speaking. And then Latin, pretty much the only people who spoke Latin were the Romans. And they didn't speak it, they only spoke it uh, for official pronouncements. Uh, like when 
Pontius Pilate's interviewing Jesus, he's almost assuredly speaking Greek. Uh, and when he's speaking to the, you know, to the chief priest, he's speaking in Greek. He's not speaking in Latin. Uh, it's just that Latin was pretty much the guy, you had to grow up in Rome to really speak Latin. And so the only people who spoke Latin were the Roman officials and the army. The army gave all its commands in Latin, mainly because no one else spoke Latin, so it's really hard to understand if you're fighting them what they're doing when they're screaming in Latin and you're you know, giving the command in Latin and you don't speak Latin. So uh, those are the languages that were around the first century, around where Jesus is teaching. You ready? Yeah. All right, I'll give this over to Rebecca for the next one. This is so uh, when you are so impressed by everything you're learning, you can uh, link the podcast to people or the audio. And they'll be able to hear our voices. So languages in the Bible. Um, first question is what languages are even, what was the Bible written in originally? Each of the 66 books. The Old Testament is mostly Hebrew. There are a few sections that are in Aramaic. So we learned that the... Jewish Hebrew people learned Aramaic during the Babylonian exile. So that's when you start to see portions in Aramaic, like Daniel, right? That's all about being in exile. Uh, Ezra, he is the prophet that returns to Judea. So portions of that are originally in Aramaic. And when I say originally, it's everyone's best guess, right? Because we don't have the absolute originals. But as far as we can tell, all the ancient books of the Old Testament were in Hebrew, a few portions in Aramaic, and then the New Testament is written in Greek. So Jesus spoke Aramaic, but the original Bible was in Greek. It's an important distinction. Translation is interpretation. So we think of translation as, okay, we have the original Bible in Greek, we need to put it into English. But before we even got the very first books of the Bible, there was translation happening because Jesus was speaking in Aramaic, people were understanding him in Aramaic, but they were writing it in Greek. And translation is definitely an art, not a science, because there is a lot of interpretation that goes into beyond the words themselves, right? So there is, there is cultural context that needs to be taken into consideration there's connotation, which is what the word means beyond the definition. And that's basically what, I always mispronounce this word, Ex exegesis. exegesis. See, I always thought it was a dirty word when I was little because it had Jesus in it, so I never, <laughs> never wanted to say it. Um, that is basically what that means. Uh, critically interpreting texts. So if you ever see that, just think interpretation. Uh, culture is built into language, right? So how many of you know a second language in here? Yeah, ish. So I've taken a little bit of Spanish and a little bit of German. And just in that, I, I had a, a professor that's like, you know, all those idioms, like, I'm learning the ropes. You're learning the ropes, like what you mean? Like, so all of that is stuff that does not translate easily, which needs to be taken into consideration when you're translating. And finally, the rhetorical structure, which is what we're going to talk most about today. Rhetorical structure is just effective writing and effective communication. 
So there are different ways that different cultures think, and that affects how they write. So the uh, people in the first century thought very differently than we do in Western civilization today. This is a fun little map that I learned when I was, um, when I was learning to, it's not a map, it's a graph structure item drawing. Uh, my very first time that I was teaching at Lipscomb, they showed this to me and it was very impactful and I thought it was very appropriate for today. Different people from different cultures think differently. In our culture, we are very linear. I want you to give me the relative information, I want you to give it to me in an order that makes sense, and I want you to get to the point, right? In Semitic cultures, which is what we're talking about today, there's a lot of parallelism. So there are lots of little points that you get to and then they're connected, which we'll talk a lot about that organization. In no one uses the word oriental anymore, but in Asian cultures, uh, being overly assertive is seen as a bad thing. So they're very roundabout and there's a lot of making sure you don't step on other people's toes while you get to the point. Romance, it's all about entertainment, right? And it's all about telling of the story. So there's gonna be a lot of what we see as pointless, you know, information to the side, but to them, that's just all part of how their thought process works. And then there's the Russians, which I love that the Russians are in, in dots. Has anyone ever had to read like Tolstoy or anything? Like, and you're just like, what is happening? Why did you just give the entire life story of this minor character that we're never going to see again? That is Russian thought process. So it's important to realize how different cultural values are built into these thought processes, which turn into writing styles. Like I mentioned, the English Western cultures, we love getting to the point. Don't waste my time. I've got things to do and places to go. So what that leans us to is very linear to the fact writing, as opposed to other cultures that are more into um, the poetry of what's being said. That's where we get Semitic writing. So there are three types of literary traditions, which I'll write on the board because we'll keep coming back to them for the rest of the day. But uh, this was built into the DNA of anyone listening to Jesus during the first century or anyone that was reading uh, the teachings of Jesus early on. And in the same way that we understand that if you are telling me a series of information, the conclusion is gonna come at the end, they understand these thought patterns. So the first one is a straight line sequence, and that is A, A, B, B, C, C, so on and so forth. That one's the easiest to understand because it's basically couplets. All the lines that go together are right next to each other. Then there's inverted parallelism. And this is the idea that entire stanzas of information are being, are coupled together in a way that 
half of the information you'll read in one stanza, the other half of the information you're gonna read in the next stanza, but they're not next to each other. You can see here it's A, B, C, C, B, A. So that first and the last stanza go together and you're gonna glean the entire meaning when you read those together. So in our minds, in our Western civilization minds, it's we read A, B, C, C, B, A, this A must be the most important information. But in reality, it's the first A and the last A, the B and the B and the C. And then finally, there's step parallelism. So inverted parallelism, I'm a visual learner. It's I'm about like to give you an example. Okay, good. <laughs> so this is Isaiah 28 as we would read it in the Bible. This is an example of? This is how we would see it. Oh. No examples of, well, it's all in here, but I will be reworking this to make it more visually apparent to us in a second. But when you read Isaiah 28, and I'm sorry, this font is minuscule, uh, we have the numbering system, and that is obviously something that was not written in the text, this is something that's been put on by uh, Western, really it's a Western organization system, chapter and verse numbers. So this is Isaiah 14 through 18. I'll go ahead and read it since we'll be spending a lot of time, 10 minutes talking about it. <laughs> Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, you boast. We have entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of the dead. We have made an agreement with an over, when an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made lie a refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. So we recognize that there's some repeating language there, but naturally our reading is to be, okay, this is all about how the scourge is going to sweep over the unrighteous, right? Because that's sort of what this ends with. That's the climax in our minds. Well, this is inverted parallelism. You can see that the, and we'll look at these stanza couplets together, but you can see that Another way of saying inverted parallelism is chiasm, which is a cross or a ring parallelism. It comes back around to what you started with. So one and seven parallel each other, two and six, three and five, and then the climax is in four. So what we read as the most important information in seven, the first century church would understand intuitively that the climax is really about the one who relies on the cornerstone that the Lord has placed. They will not be stricken with panic. So to give you sort of a more detailed example, 
This is the first and seventh stanzas. So this is part of verse 14 and verse 18. You can sort of see that there are different colors there, hopefully a little bit. So we've entered a covenant with death, your covenant with death. We have that covenant with death language repeating. The second line, the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement, your agreement with the realm of the dead. So that language repeats itself again. This third line, completely identical. When an, the overwhelming scourge sweeps by. And then we have these, language, these lines parallel as well. It cannot touch us, you will be beaten down by it. So it's the exact same thought, but inverted. The unrighteous think this, but this is what's gonna happen to God, says God. So this is an example of within stanzas that are paired together with inverted parallelism. This is step parallelism, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. The A's line up, the B's line up, the C's and the D's. So here is the entire passage again with, sorry guys, I thought these colors would be clearer. You can see that three and six, or two and six rather, and three and five are paired together. So we have made a, a lie our refuge. Hail will sleep away your refuge, the lie. Falsehood is our hiding place. Water will overflow your hiding place. So you may be thinking this is really interesting from like a literary standpoint, like what a fascinating fun fact, but why is it really important? And it is incredibly important because if you are reading just verse 14 or just verse 18, you're only getting half of what the writers want you to get, which is in this past verse, everything that God is planning for those who make lies their refuge. And again, the climax is at the center. This is something that is so hard for us to grasp because it's, for most of us, something that's so counterintuitive, but for, in the same sense that we are just trained to understand that the climax is the end, they understood that the climax was the center. So it's just- You're taught this from elementary school, right? I mean, it's like how to build a paragraph. Right. This supports the thing at the end. I teach public speaking, and I mean, the Western line, that is all we teach. One of the consistencies that you said strikes me, I remember this from an early survey of the Gospels, back when I went to ACC, about how Mark, the Gospel of Mark, has its climax, I think, in chapter 9, mm -hmm. not in Mark 16. Yeah. Um, so. I never forget how that, that was kind of built into the whole structure of the book. The climax happens in the middle. Not, Not only that, but there are 17 instances in Mark alone where inverted parallelism is used in that seven stanza format. So inverted parallelism can be anything from a few lines, but the seventh stanza, it's like our five paragraph essay. The seven stanza inverted parallelism is all over the Bible because it's just such a common way of of writing to them. But yeah, it's, you find it on all levels, within a paragraph, within a passage, within an entire book. 
And do you find it within different genre as well? Do you do you see the same type of approach regardless of the genre of the material? Yeah, uh, and this is something that um, obviously most biblical or most Semitic scholarship is. There's a lot of it based on the holy text, but with pretty much all Semitic writing, there's this idea that climaxes are in the middle. It's just thought patterns. Yeah. Do we see this same style even in the modern world today, or do, has a lot of culture kind of adopted, I guess, what we consider our Western straight line thought? That's a great question. I am not very well versed on modern Semitic academic texts. What, what do you consider modern? I mean, I don't know, Tolstoy. I mean, when you're talking thousands of years of writings, yeah. <coughs> I, mean, there I don't are, know where he fits in, but it's that Russian. Do you have any thoughts on that, Stephen? You're the well, one that actually been to Israel. Well, I think that um, our way, our Western way of thinking is Greek. Yes. Driven. And therefore, it is very logical. We want to, I mean, another way I think of this is Jews think pictures, we think concepts. So, like, we would say, well, what is God? We'd say God is truth. God is grace. God is all-powerful. Okay, all true. I mean, it's awesome stuff. God is love. Picture that. Okay, Jews would say, well, God is my rock. And God is water for me on a hot day. God is shade <clears throat> on a hot day in the sun. God, you know, so it's pictures, right? So it's not what God is. It's this is what God is like. So that, that's kind of another way to say it's like it's not direct, but it is a picture where we can say, okay, I know what you're saying when you, you say shade on a sunny day or water on a hot day or so on and so on. So that's, that's kind of another way to think about it. There's, a, there's an interesting in Psalm 103 uh, when it says the Lord is slow to anger and uh, the, the Hebrew word there for anger is actually knows. So the Lord is slow to knows. But the picture you're getting is, well, when you get angry and you're fuming and you're like, the Lord is slow to that. So it's weird if you think, well, the Lord is slow to knows, but they're thinking, oh, when you get angry, you're like, God's slow to that, but he's merciful instead. Yeah, you know, so that's that's kind of another way to think about it, that roundabout or zigzag, mm -hmm. scattered way of it seems scattered, but like you said, if you have some kind of framework, sometimes it's hidden right in the middle. And I kind of think of what we're doing. This is a much less intelligent reference, but has anyone seen the movie Arrival? It's all about how language shapes thoughts. You should all see it. It's fascinating. <laughs> it's a science fiction movie that came out last year. Yes, yes, but it's not like an alien movie. I don't know. Um, uh, I, I, an example of someone asked, "Do modern languages do that?" Uh, we we have run a hospital in Africa, and uh, there is an American nurse who lives over there, and they had a staff meeting to talk about a couple things that we looked at the at the agenda. It was about an hour agenda. It took them two eight-hour days do that meeting because they talk around everything so different cultures the way they they talk uh, you know in order to get in order to get to what we would 
doing an hour took two days of just talking around all these other side issues that weren't the issue but really were the issue. But at the same time, if we were to have gone in and run that meeting, they would have been like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, yeah, you yes. are so offensively. Yes, we would have stepped all over that. Yes. Uh, so the entirety of narratives was what I mean by this third point is with the numbering system, they didn't necessarily understand this concept either. So we see, hopefully now with our new Eastern eyes, how there is inverted parallelism within a, a passage of scripture. Sometimes the numbers just don't correlate with that. So you can't look and be like, okay, I'm gonna find the parallelism of chapter seven, because sometimes, like in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 2, 2, they've just completely chopped off the end of a stanza because in our minds, a new story is starting. So you can't always rely on the numbers and verses to do the work for you. One, one thought that just struck me, um, Stephen Covey's one of the more current management thinking gurus uh, whose writings have influenced a lot of us, a lot of us in, in business. And probably the one thing he's remembered for is begin with the end in mind, uh, as opposed to consider the middle first <laughs> or whatever. Um, but that's that's in our culture to kind of okay what's what's the bottom line and then mm -hmm. backwards from there. Yeah, and that I think dovetails nicely into the idea that they speak in pictures. So looking at at what the whole picture is, not just the end. So very quickly, I know we're over time, but I feel like this is incredibly important. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. The people were listening to him in Aramaic. They had to make an interpretation translation before they wrote the very first gospels in scripture in Greek. And then later, Greek texts were picking and choosing to be made into the Bible themselves. So a lot of times we wanna say, and in other religions, they say the deity came, spoke it into existence, and it was. But in order to really understand what the Bible is, you have to understand that before we even got to translating Greek to English or the Latin Bible or any of that, there was translation happening and choices, human choices being made before we got the Bible in the first place, which does not necessarily mean that the Bible is not the inspired word of God or it definitely is not or it is or it isn't. All you have to say is this is how the way that the Bible is structured is how first century Jewish people remembered and wrote down history. And not just Jewish people, because we know Luke and um, some of the other New Testament were Greek. So just understanding how the different cultures understood history, conveyed their thought patterns, will help us read what they were trying to say. So that's it for week two.